Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. Today is one of my favorite Sundays to preach, though I usually often come to it with the least energy of any Sunday to preach. But I love this story of Epiphany, and I hope that it lands in a place that inspires us for the new year this year. Now, I want you to imagine, okay, I know our kids are spread out all over the place. We don't have a lot of children here today. But if I were to do a children's sermon, and I was to set them down in the front row, and I would ask them to look around the sanctuary and point to the kings, you and I both suspect that they would probably look, try to figure out where in the world the kings have been because we don't put them up here. And then they didn't. Well, these guys finally made their way here. They might point here. They might also point over there. We got three guys over there who are hanging out, right? Because, you know, they're on the journey. It's going to take them some time. And of course, they would identify the, these three characters that always come at the same time, right? Because after all, we just say, saying, we three kings who come and kneel down and worship while bringing their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But then if we were to think about it a little bit more, and this is where I feel a little bit of shame, I was like, well, let's think about the kings. And I'm like, oh yeah, there's another king, and it's the baby. Sort of forget that sometimes. And as I was going over this, I'm like, oh yeah, the one who's actually the king is not the dudes in the fancy dresses, it's the baby in a loincloth. Oh, there's another king. Oops. Oh yeah, that counts too. And then, if we were listening to the scripture carefully, the story begins, as Matthew recounts it, in the time of King Herod. So we don't have just three kings. What we have are three sets of kings, all piled into one place. And if we know anything about kings, if we know anything about rulers, people in power... We know that when such power is in such close proximity to one another, it is, how shall we say this delicately, it is a delicate proposition. And that, friends, sets the tone for today's story. There's a reason Matthew says in the time of King Herod, he needs, he's triggering us to something important. Because Epiphany is a story of just how combustible this situation actually is. And unfortunately, it does combust, but it also inspires. And it, all, and it provides for us who embark on a new year, who embark in a, on a, at a time that is almost equally difficult to the time of Jesus' birth, it provides for us great clarity as to what we should be on the lookout for and what we are called to. Now, Epiphany, celebrated today in our congregation, but most properly celebrated on January 6th, which is 12 days after Christmas, is, of course, the celebration of the visitation of the Magi or the wise men. Who are these guys, and why do they look so funny in our manger scenes? Well, we believe them, to the best of our knowledge, to have been part of an Eastern intellectual elite. Our best guess is Zoroastrian practitioners from Persia. They are not properly kings themselves, but we have every expectation that they would have carried significant political clout. So when we think king, that's not really these guys, but there's a sense in which they certainly represent royalty and exercise power in and of themselves. 
skilled in astronomy, astrology, and presumably world history, they discern in the stars that a king is on his way, born king of the Jews. And so they go in search of this king. Which stop there just for a second and say how remarkable it is that these fellows set off on this remarkable but anonymous journey across difficult terrain for what we would have anticipated would have been months, even years, to pay tribute to a child born in the city that is the city of David, yes, but is often considered the least of the rulers of Judah. Why would these guys in this great empire come all the way to this little town? But when they arrive in Jerusalem, they properly, as is custom, they go to King Herod. They announce their presence, and because they are observing all the proper protocols, they assume Herod's cooperation. They ask, where is the one born king of the Jews? How wonderfully naive of them. But nevertheless, doing what they are to do. Notice they do not say, where is the one who is to be made king? This is not somebody who aspires to the throne. It is the one who is born king of the Jews. And this slaps Herod in the face. Because we need to understand a little thing about Herod. Herod came to power not because he was part of a royal family. He was put in place by the Roman emperor. Herod was in proximity to power. His family had power in this region, but it was not in sort of the notion of king. He was not in the line of David or of Solomon or the great kings that we think of. No, 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 that's not who Herod was. The problem that Rome had was that Israel was this hotbed of all kinds of problems. And so they needed somebody there who could act as a king and could make sure that things would stay at least somewhat simmering. And so Herod is a puppet king. Herod is simply there as the long arm of Caesar. And the only caveat, the only thing he was responsible for was to be subservient to Caesar. He's a king, yes, he exercises authority, but he is a puppet king at best. And so when somebody comes and says, there's one who is born, who has a greater claim to the throne than you, Herod's not a fan. And this story unfolds under, in this place under his watch. The man who is terrified, this fragile ego terrified of this baby during the time of King Herod. Before we go too far down the road, let us be honest one with another that nearly all of human history has taken place during the time of King Herod. Whether it's the time of Herod, where we go farther back and say Pharaoh, or Nebuchadnezzar, Caesar, pick any one of them that you want, or Nero. We might look to more modern history and say to Hitler, Mussolini, Pinochet, Milosevic, Putin, all of them, of a like mind, remarkably of a like mind, yes? Paranoid, violent, manipulative, and thirsty for power. And so it should surprise us little, those of us who observe power play itself out through history, it should surprise us very, very little that when King Herod heard this, he was, as it said in the reading, frightened you might excuse me if I prefer the translation disturbed. He was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Not annoyed, not, hmm, what is going on there? This is disturbed to the depth of his being. And when faced with a new king, 
When faced with a challenger to the throne, this very fragile ego snaps into his most basic and self-serving instincts. And when the leader snaps into this most self-serving of interest, Israel does the same. Why does Israel? We can only guess. Maybe Israel was fully in support of Herod and they were concerned that they were going to lose this guy who was making some kind of a living for them. Maybe they were scared to death of Herod, who they had seen destabilized before, and they're scared that if he's destabilized once again, and you all have been here, you know what this is like. Oh my God, if he goes off, what's going to happen to us? Whatever Israel's problem is, they have the same concern, the same fear as Herod. Maybe they want things to stay the way they are, the way they've always been. Maybe they're war-weary from rebellions past, and they're worried about what rash action from their unorthodox, paranoid leader might look like. Either way, fear settles upon Jerusalem like a blanket. And Herod's paranoia finally comes to full bloom, full bloom, for this was a man well acquainted with putting down rebellions and challengers to his authority from his backwater constituency. To protect his crown, he executes one of the great mass crimes in the history of our scriptures sending squads of soldiers to kill every firstborn male child, which is now honored by us and known to us now as the slaughter of the innocents, those that gave their life for Christ, the first martyrs, so to speak, so that Christ could give his life for us. This is not the last time that power will resort to violence, whether at the hands of Herod's death squads or political or military power, Crowns will always defend their thrones by violence, whether it is Cain in Genesis or Herod in Matthew. The Magi, political players themselves, offer us a different way, a way to discern a faithful response to this child who destabilizes everything. They receive word that the child is to be born in Bethlehem, and they set out to find this child, drawing close to the end of this remarkably long journey. And when they saw the star, they were, quote, and this is a beautiful word, overjoyed. Not just happy, not just, are we there yet? Yes, finally. No. Overjoyed. And they come to the house and they offer gifts, lavish, extraordinary gifts. They pay tribute. But this is not the tribute of political machinations. It is an act of faith, an act of worship, something that arose out of joy and wonder rather than manipulation. Because they understood who this child was. And they intuited something that Herod could never understand. Somehow they knew that this child later would say to another political operator, this one's name was Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would have fought for me. He says, I'm not exercising power like you all do. And they remind us that the kingdom Jesus comes to bring is not the kingdom of Herod. We're simply not swapping out one violent and oppressive king for another. No, he comes to bring a way of being to the world that is completely different. And before we think it just belongs to those who are in his little circle of friends, no, these, pre- these, these wise men remind us of the kingly nature of this child, that ultimately every knee will, ba- will bow, every knee will bend, 
not as oppression, but as tribute, as an act of willful submission, as an act of love. This king doesn't come to reign over a particular nation. All nations will disappear in light of his love and of his glory. So whatever it was in the hearts of these magi, hear how they discern this king. They come in wonder and in awe and a sense of discovery so that they might offer worship. Whereas Herod comes with fear, with oppression and violence to put down a rebellion. The Magi's hearts are full. The Magi's hearts are faithful. And my favorite part of this story is that they go through this entire journey and they come and they offer this gifts. And then it says that they went home by another way. When we have an experience of God, there is no going home by the same way. There is no going back to normal because they're changed forever. They may go home, but it's never quite home after such an encounter. So it is in the walk of faith. When we come and wonder and awe and worship at the feet of this child, we are changed, going back home, rejoicing, but never to the same home we left. Friends, for all of our polarization and politicization, the times of Herod in which we find ourselves now, do have one virtue going for them. The moment in which we find ourselves provides remarkable clarity. It is not hard to discern the places where power, violence, and oppression are still used to hold on to worldly notions of power at all costs. And nobody has to explain to us the devastation that arises as a result of power by violence. Wherever we see self-defense as opposed to community, where we see self-interest instead of service to neighbor, when we see violence instead of love, wherever we see fear, wherever we see people negotiating with God to try to get something out of God, we can know that actions, whether it's our actions individually or the world's, we can know that they are not rooted in the life of faith. They are rooted in a world that will pass away. But in the same way, when we find those places where we are drawn by mystery, we are drawn by wonder, drawn by awe, the profound and the divine, there we know that there's another kingdom on the way. Friends, it often comes from outside the established structures, much like the Magi do. The Magi just kind of come flying in from off the page. You're like, where'd you guys come from? Like, there was no indication you were coming, and here you are. That's often how it works. Wonder and awe come flying in out of nowhere and don't force us. They draw us. Wonder and awe draw us to mystery and love which changes us, sends us home by another way, and stands as a witness against the times of Herod. That, my friends, is the call to the church in this age. We are called to a church of the epiphany not to continue to exercise power as we have been used to, but wonder all in love and service of change. So let us, like the Magi, draw near to Christ, unsure of what we'll find, but fascinated by what we might find nevertheless. 
Let us be people of prayer who look heavenward as the Magi did towards the stars of wisdom and guidance and to discover there the shining star that is the love of Christ. And let us, like the Magi, put our feet into action, taking journeys to unknown places. And folks, let me tell you, the journey of faith is hard and it is rugged and it'll beat you up a little bit. But it's going to take us to a place that is remarkable because we are drawn not by fear, but by the curiosity of mind and heart to discover this new way of being in the world, power that is not of this world. And may we learn to bow, to bring the tributes of worship and service, all soaked not in obligation, but in joy, that we might never be the same, but return by another way, rejoicing always.